Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time in the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Thursday, March 19, 2020. Uh, Lord knows when you're listening to this. Uh, it is a crisis time in our country. In the world, actually, uh, the uh, coronavirus pandemic has forced a lot of changes, one of which is that we're doing our first ever bonus episode from my house. We've been doing the show, the uh, regular show from my house all week. And uh, so we're not even going to the Suntime studio, uh, but we're still prevailing. D, we're going to do a bonus episode just like normal. That's correct. Uh, and uh, as we usually do with a bonus episode, I just give you a headline. Uh, what so you can sense what's in the going on in the world as we uh, speak of course we all know what's on the headlines these days u.s seeks 500 billion dollars in checks for taxpayers president invokes a wartime law to help americans fight an invisible enemy wow donald trump finally getting around to taking the coronavirus seriously so anyway that's the headlines on march 19th 2020 as we always do on the ben Jarowski bonus show I ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself so distinguished guest introduce yourself hey ben so this is socially distanced trial lawyer uh, of Dwyer and Coogan, Jim Coogan. Yes, indeed. Jim Coogan, for the first time ever, we're doing an interview and you're not sitting across from me. I don't know. Is that true? Did I ever do a phone interview all the times? We've had conversations on podcasts, radio. You've always been in the studio, right? Or do you remember a time when you were not in the studio? I, just... um, I, I think all of them was in the studio. Yep. Yeah, so times have changed. It looks like you're sitting in your law office. Is that correct, or you're in your library? I've got a little office here at the house, uh, just like everybody else. I am uh, trying to take the the public health precautions as seriously as I can, and, and distance myself and wash my hands thirty or forty times a day, and everything else. All right. Sound advice. Uh, generally, when Jim is on the show and when we do our interviews, we talk about uh, all the legal issues of the day. Uh, how is this legal is is the title of the uh, the, the podcast. Usually it's t- <laughs> there we go. I, you still have that sound. D. Uh, usually we're talking about to, uh, all the no good things that Donald Trump is up to and uh, how he's trying to thwart the goodwill. We'll get into some of that stuff. But, Jim, why don't we uh, start at the top with the impact of the coronavirus uh, on the court system? Uh, here in Chicago and in the state of Illinois. The courts are closed. Talk about the practical implications of that. Yeah, this is crazy. Um, you know, other than occasionally a weather emergency, I have I can't remember any time since I started practicing as a lawyer where 
the basic court systems, criminal, civil courts, and the other administrative law that I do, which is workers' compensation, were all closed. There, they have been, and I think following September 11th, maybe they were closed for a couple of days. But we're talking about indefinite closures for all regular non-emergency court activity, which is really kind of mind-blowing because for the most part, it's one thing that we try to endeavor uh, to to have kind of an American ex- expectation that there's an open court system where you can seek your civil redress or where they can administer criminal justice in a way that's fair to the people and to the accused. So uh, the practical implications are basically since Friday night, and here we are, I'm, I'm going to focus on Cook County just for a moment because it's one of the largest unified county court systems in the world and in the United States. Um, and that's where I do most of my work. They really only got to announcing what the plan would be seven, eight, nine o'clock at night on Friday. And since then, the word from Tim Evans, Judge Chief Judge Tim Evans, who presides over the entire county court system, has changed a couple times. That's not a criticism. It's just because the the circumstances are shifting so quickly that uh, we keep getting additional advice and notifications about what's going to happen. So it's affected everybody's practices. It's affected how we do business. It's affected our expectations for what the next steps are with our cases. And um, I it's still, I think there's still a, an element of just trying to process all of it. So like, do they push back jury trials? Have you got notices? I mean, of, of new dates, I, I I'm thinking of just my own life, not non-legal life. Uh, for instance, the dentist call, I had a dentist appointment for next week. And the dentist sent me a message saying that all dental appointments are temporarily postponed. They don't even know when they're going to, uh, start taking visits again. So don't even try to make a new, a date. Is it a similar situation with the courts where they're saying, don't even bother us with requesting new trial dates. We'll let you know when we know. Yes. And, um, in fact, that's one of the real challenges is so normally I'll, I'll let everybody in on a little secret to the, the exciting world of civil justice. Normally when we're working on, let's say one case, we've got a client, they got injured somehow. We've sued somebody. We go to court once every 30 to 90 days. And in that time, the expectation is we should complete different activities. Like when the case just starts out, the parties exchange some information about who is a witness and what happened, and what documents do you have, what your evidence is going to be. And then you move on and you get oral depositions, which people have heard more about in the national news because depositions are part of the impeachment preparations, uh, which effectively, if you haven't heard of one, it's just you're sitting in a room but not a room, and lawyers have the opportunity to ask questions under oath about various matters that you may be a witness to. So all these things progress over the course of a year, two, three years. That's, that's why it takes so long to get to trial. People wonder what what in God's name are the lawyers doing all this time while they're waiting to start the trial? Um, that's what happens. You know, you're, you're fighting over scheduling. You got challenges with witnesses showing up. Um, documents are difficult to find or it's hard to get certain medical records or something like that. Um, so that's what we're doing all that time. And the court monitors what's happening. So you check in, 
that, you know, you had a deadline to do something, maybe you did it, maybe you didn't. You could get in trouble if you haven't. You might get barred from presenting certain evidence if you don't comply. But that's the usual day-to-day process. And it all leads up to eventually getting to a trial. So, for example, that's one thing that they have said. All those dates. I have a case where I'm supposed to show up next week to meet with Judge So-and-so, step up to the bench and say where we're at. That has automatically been pushed out eight weeks. Wow. Eight weeks. So what do you tell your client? Well, basically what I just told you, you know, without with a little more information about tailored to their case and where it's at, but um, you asked about jury trials. The, the issue there is I still haven't seen a clear directive about exactly what happens with jury trials. Yeah. And if you have a civil case set for trial, the system has been for a while that it's almost impossible to get that changed. So you, you better have your ducks in a row, have your witnesses ready and get going. Um, so what happens if your date was supposed to be March 21st? Or that's a, that's a weekend. But anyway, if it was late March, now suddenly you're within the bounds of this order. You know it's not going to happen, but the question is when will it happen? Um, and you're ta- you might be talking about flying witnesses in from out of state. You might be talking about someone who's um, – unhealthy and has health issues getting to court as a witness or as the plaintiff themselves. Um, and at a minimum, what this is also about is I can't imagine it. it there's no good justification for forcing jurors to show up, but I also don't think anybody would mm. under these circumstances, even if you ask them. You know, and I'm thinking you're talking, concentrating on your own uh, business and the impact it has on, on cases here in Cook County. I'm thinking, uh, an issues of national significance, obviously, for instance, the, the proceeding against Obamacare, the Republicans trying to uh, knock out Obamacare, uh, that's a matter that could be stalled and delayed. It could have national implications. There's proceedings to trying to force Donald Trump to turn over his, his tax statements. Uh, that's been frozen, I'm sure. So there's how will... Will it, do you think that this stuff will get resolved before the election? Do you think this could have the impact of just delaying all these very important uh, federal issues involving Donald Trump that we talk about all the time till after the election? Well, if you so, for example, if it were an oral argument and uh, on a let's say it's a federal case, so it's been decided by a district court judge, and now it's at the appeals level or it's at the Supreme Court level. What I think is going to happen, if there is a desire to move these things forward, they can schedule telephonic hearings. And actually, I was reading things today because I have some some of my cases are also in the federal court system. They are equipped. Well, (laughs) Cook County's one of its shortcomings is that the Daily Center is not well equipped with telephone systems. They don't have telephones on the bench. Um, so even there's, there's counties outside of Cook where you can call into the court and do the report on what your status is. Cause it's not something where it really ought to require your presence in person. Yeah. Um, federal courts are all set up with that technology as well. And so are appellate courts. So if they, if there is a desire to do it with the proper notice and with the planning, they can definitely sit there and say, look, we've got this case. We're going to continue the hearing to April 25th, and that's going to be the day where every the parties shall not be allowed to show up in person. But 
the court order says you call in, we'll make sure everybody's on the teleconference, and then we proceed as we would. So it could come I out. I mean, the only thing I would say is, the only, I guess now that I'm thinking about it, one challenge would be the normal court process at the appellate or the Supreme Court level includes a lot of in-person meetings among the clerks. Mm-hmm. So even if the lawyers don't have to be there, they do their work in a little office space, conference rooms. They're talking about, you know, a judge, well, I found some case law and supports that you, you really want to lean this way. Well, here's a bunch of cases that support you, but here's the other cases. I'm sure they can similarly move to remote work, but it would be an adjustment. And certainly, I imagine the adjusting part of it would delay doing it in a timely fashion. I mentioned uh, getting these cases resolved before uh, the election. I think the the one at the top of the list that could probably have the most bearing uh, on the outcome of this election would be the the effort by Republicans in Texas uh, to knock out Obamacare. And I'm presuming that uh, there will be an election. So let me get to this question. Uh, is there, is it constitutionally uh, allowed for Donald Trump to call off the election? I've had so many people call and ask me this. Uh, they want, like, they think I'm a lawyer, Jim. I just interview you. That's the only thing I know about. And I watch a lot of uh, uh, TV shows about lawyers. Does he have the uh, the right to call off an election? The people calling you for legal advice that probably have issues beyond their legal problems. <laughs> that sounds dangerous to me. Um, although I do know you're a big fan of Better Call Saul, so I, you definitely have gotten some uh, some some realistic ish. Uh, yeah, but, call um, me for legal advice. Yeah, but, but in all seriousness, um, so I am not aware of any legal authority to suspend the constitution to suspend a constitutionally set election. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, it's the, the the actual amendment to the constitution that says when the president's term, president's term end, ends is kind of like the first place to start this analysis. So it's the 20th Amendment. It says that on the 20th day of January at noon in the year in which that term was supposed to have ended, that the president's term is over. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. So even if for some reason there wasn't a November election or it didn't happen the third uh, or the, the first Tuesday of November, his term would still end. So there would be an issue and probably a a national constitutional crisis issue as to what happens then. But in the meantime, there's a federal statute that says November of the preceding year, before that date, whenever that turnover is supposed to happen, is when the federal elections are supposed to occur. Mm -hmm. So it's the law. There's nothing presently in, in place to stop it from happening. There are no powers under the, like any emergency act like the Stafford Act that include anything that allows the president to take action to change the date of an election. So the short answer is there's no authority to do so. Um, you know, the broader question, and we've come back to this more than once when it comes to Trump, is whether he does things regardless of whether there's authority to do yeah. so. I, you know, I don't like to speculate about these things. And to be honest, when I hear people on TV comment on it or ask the question, I get nervous, if only because it seems like 
don't give this man suggestions <laughs> on how to abuse his authority yeah. because he's very <laughs> apt to do so. Yeah. It's almost like he's looking for more ideas of ways to abuse authority. Um, you know, you, 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 you think in this, in terms of some of the practical ways that that would happen, I guess there are issues because how can he tell Illinois not to hold its elections? How can he go out? He can't, can he, what, what, under what authority, by what mechanism could he stop the state of California from having polling places open, collecting those ballots and collecting their mail-in ballots and collecting the votes and then just tallying it up and saying, here's what our electors are going to do. I mean, it's the electors meet when they meet sub, subsequently after the election is done and after all the votes are counted in some states, you know, take an extra couple of days or we saw some of this, the worst case scenario in 2001 with, with the 2000 election for, or yeah, the 2000 election for the 2001 term for George Bush, um, Florida didn't certify anything until the Supreme court stepped in. And I think that was in mid December. Mm -hmm. So like the electoral college is kind of like the step that follows after the November election. Again, he doesn't really have any authority to stop them from meeting, stop them from casting their votes. And then that's, that's the answer. That's, yeah. that's who won the election according to the Constitution. You can't stop the Constitution from being the Constitution. But, well, I, I don't mean, the fact that you have to ask the question is the point, right? Yeah, and uh, yeah, exactly. And also, I, I don't think you have to worry about putting uh, diabolical ideas into Donald Trump's brain. They already reside there. He's probably already sought advice on this. Uh, I actually believe that the change, he's had sort of a different... Uh, sort of public appearance in regards uh, to the virus uh, and to the role he as president uh, faces, uh, is conf the challenges he's confronted with. The last three days, he's trying, uh, Jim, really hard to be presidential in his appearance. So I'm absolutely convinced that somebody told him, uh, Donald, you're going to lose this election if you don't change your attitude. And so I think he's constantly thinking about uh, the election that's ahead and uh, holding on to his office. So I think he's probably already uh, two steps ahead of us uh, on this front. Now, uh, let's just talk about the election that just occurred in Illinois. We discussed this on the show. Should Pritzker have called off the election? Should the state have had the election? Does Pritzker have the authority? Does the governor of Illinois have the authority to uh, call off an election? He doesn't legally have the authority to do it. If they wanted to change the date of the election, they actually would have needed to pass a piece of legislation. My understanding is that as of last week or leading up to Tuesday, I don't think the General Assembly was even in session in Springfield. Yeah. So, you, you know, mechanically, because of the speed at which this happened, I mean, it's not nobody was asking that question a month ago. They weren't asking that question even two weeks ago. I don't even think people really seriously considered whether it would have to be suspended until the day before the election or maybe on the day of, because again, 10 days ago in the news, you were hearing about COVID-19, but you really weren't mm -hmm. concerned about social distancing. The CDC hadn't done anything. The president hadn't declared a state of emergency. Um, the state hadn't declared a state of emergency. So practically speaking, you never, I, I think under by March 17th, you never would have gotten that action in place. But yeah. no, the Pritzker himself doesn't have any state authority granted to him as the governor of the state to decide we're going to cancel today. We're going to pick a new date. Um, I mean, technically, 
I think the Secretary of State would be the one to actually take the action mm-hmm. because they oversee the elections as well. Um, but that would have been controversial. Yeah, to put it mildly. Uh, I'm listening. I'm glad he didn't. I think I told you this on the phone. I've said this on the air more than once. Uh, as it was a mixed message to have an election in the middle of a coronavirus scare, but I'm glad it's over. If for no other reason, I don't have to hear any more Bill Conway commercials for his state's attorney's race. All right, uh, let's talk. Yeah, about- but those those, yeah. those commercials, uh, <laughs> Ben, you really got a lot of feature out of that commercial run. Yes, I did. And you were uh, <laughs> you were front and center for a couple of days there. Yes, I I did. And the, for folks who uh, may not know what Jim's uh, alluding to, uh, Kim Fox was a guest on my show, and uh, we were talking about the Justice Smollett case. We call it Smollett, uh, Smollett Gate, uh, and. Uh, she followed. I was saying that for most lefties like myself, it was much to do about nothing. And she agreed with with me. And she actually said it was bullshit. Uh, and she used those words. And uh, and Conway it was an act of utter desperation. Uh, Jim, he took her statement and turned it into an attack ad. I think she, I think he thought people would be shocked uh, that she would swear. Uh, so yeah, it, my name was splashed on it as, and I was, my biggest concern with that, Jim, was that people would think I was endorsing him. Okay. No, under no circumstances, uh, was I endorsing him, but, uh, yeah, it was, um, it was, good. by the way, here's just a, an aside within an aside and always got a kick out of it because her quote, uh, newspapers would pick up on it. And I think I, I've said this, you know, they would go and they would go, she said it was, and then they would put within quotes BS. I go, no, no, that's un- that defeats the whole purpose. She did not say B. When you put it in quotes, it's like they're literally saying she said BS. Anyway, minor point. Um, Copy editors should be more. They should pay more attention to that kind of thing. It is inaccurate. It is I agree with inaccurate. Um, but you know, I do want to say one thing about it. I would not. The only thing about asking these questions and the, the actions that they took in Ohio to actually suspend it. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, it's like I, the less precedent, the better. I don't like the notion of, regardless of how serious the national emergency is, suspending an election. They held an election in 1864. Yeah, during the Civil War, yeah. The, the Civil War wasn't over yet when yeah. they held that election. They still yeah. did. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that makes you nervous is when someone in power uses that, not because there's such an emergency that people voting exposes them or is just not safe for the country, but that they're using it to retain power. Absolutely. Um, so that's, that's the thing that worries me is when, if more states do it, then it gives them Trump more fodder to say, Hey, 20 states also took this action. I'm not the first one to do it. This is, I'm just doing this in the best interest of the United States. A war is going on against an invisible enemy enemy and I'm in the same power. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm with you on this point. I believe that a lot of the criticism uh, aimed at Pritzker on this measure is being done by Republicans who are holding on the option of delaying the election uh, for Trump. I also believe that if there's um, considerations, health uh, considerations for um, regarding an election and you don't want to have it because you're afraid that people get sick or get the virus, then you should move to. I don't know, alternatives like mail-in elections. Yep. And uh, that Absolutely. did, we didn't have enough time. That Your point was was the, the most pertinent one. Like this, the concerns over uh, the virus have been building over time. 
Uh, two right. weeks ago, we were far left. Two weeks ago, you were, we would have been in the studio. We wouldn't be doing this yep. this photo interview, this uh, this telephone interview. So I just think they didn't have enough time. We do have enough time to prepare for it in November. Uh, and by the way, whether I think Donald Trump will try to cheat uh, with a mail-in election, I'm very concerned about that. Uh, but I do believe we would have enough time before if we if if this virus is still a a threat in the summer, Jim, I think we'd probably have to start considering, you know, what we're going to do for the November election. And there'd be enough time, I think, to plan. It wouldn't be like in Illinois. Um, all right. Well, I was talking about the consequences of the election, uh, presuming that there will be an election. And I do presume there'll be an election. There was a story in the New York Times about uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, who is, of course, uh, the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, are urging older federal judges to retire. This is unbelievable. He was just saying, hey, old geezer, retire. We want to replace you with a younger conservative judge who can last forever with the notion, or at least last for the next 30 years or so, with the notion, of course, that the Democrats uh, might take over uh, the White House and they would lose... You know, they would lose the uh, and, and the Senate and they would. So the Republicans would lose the ability to name these judges. One more time, Jim, explain why it's so important uh, for Democrats to take the House. Uh, I mean, excuse me, take the Senate and the White House. Wait, are you, are you sure that was Senator Mitch McConnell from Kentucky that said that? Because <laughs> I remember I remember I thought Mitch McConnell from Kentucky was the guy in 2016 who held the Supreme Court seat open saying that there was an election happening that year and that we needed to let the people decide who or which party or which president would be able to nominate the person to take that open seat. I'm a little confused, Ben. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, different circumstances, different rhetoric from Mitch McConnell, uh, proving the overall point I've been saying all day. There really are no fixed principles when it comes to uh, Republican strategists. But yes, your point's well taken. It was the very same Mitch McConnell who said he would not advance uh, Merrick Garland's, wasn't it Merrick Garland's nomination? It was Merrick Because Garland. he wanted yep. the people to have an opportunity to weigh in. Guarantee you, he's going to be railroad pushing those judges, or getting the geezers to retire, and getting the new blood in. Um, I, I mean, can he be censored for that or anything? I mean, I always ask you, is that legal? It certainly doesn't sound very ethical, does it? Well, he very plainly stated the same. He he already answered the question himself. It's a clip that might be from last fall at some kind of a campaign event where somebody asked him the question, and his very straightforward answer to the hypothetical of let's say someone retired next year or in the next couple of months before the 2020 November elections, what would you do? And his answer was we would fill that seat. Yeah. So it's, it's, he's not restrained in any way by hypocrisy or by inconsistency when it comes to the most pure application and exercise of power. That's who Mitch McConnell has been for his entire political career. So, you know, the, the answer to your original question uh, I promise I knew I'd get back to it is the, the appointments to the federal bench are lifetime appointments. And at this stage where we have basically obliterated the old um, 60 vote rule when it came to filibustering or, or the uh, gentleman's agreement using the filibuster and not um, just ramming through appointments with less than 60 votes has long become, now it's basically in the past. So the, what it means is in the future, 
if you have the presidency and you have 51 votes in the Senate, you can put anybody on to the bench on either side that, that uh, it, throughout your entire presidency or until you lose the Senate. And because those are lifetime appointments, there's a tremendous amount of power to be able to appoint people to those positions. The real disappointing and concerning and sort of alarming fact is that for the last three years, a, a great majority, well, I shouldn't say great majority, far too many of the appointees that the Trump administration has come up with, supplied to them by the Federalist Society, um, aren't really trial lawyers, haven't been in court, don't know simple things. There was a, I think we talked about it on the show once, a really embarrassing clip where somebody that they appointed from a federal agency, but who was known to be very, very conservative, he was being cross-examined by Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana, who is a dyed-in-the-wool Republican, about what a deposition is, and he couldn't answer the question. Yeah. <laughs> I Even, mean, it was beyond embarrassing. Yeah. yeah. This is in a Senate hearing room. I mean, so these are the kind of people, that's the level of, now, great, granted, I'm sure most of the other ones are more of the Neil Gorsuch type, where they're highly, highly ideological, yeah. but also very, very good. They can speak. They can write. They've got legal experience. They won't embarrass themselves. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, that's more dangerous because you're you're creating an extraordinarily ideological bench. Granted, these are always political appointees. Look, it, it, it's the government, right? You're going to have a politics. You're going to be a part of it. But I don't think, and I think the, the numbers back this up, that it's ever been politicized to this degree, to this extreme degree, where now it's really – Chief Justice Roberts made a public statement sometime last year about there is no Obama judges and Trump judges. We're all judges. Mm. Well, that's just false. And he knows it. But it's also gotten much worse as time has gone on. And this administration has exploited it to an extraordinary degree. What, what, do, you, what do you think the difference would have been had the Democrats prevailed in 2016 with the bench right now? Well, <laughs> Well, you would have had a very interesting process when it came to what had been an open Supreme Court seat. Because if Hillary Clinton was president, let's assume you still had 53 Republican senators, mm -hmm. then she still wouldn't have been able to appoint anybody just without some kind of concession or brokering some sort of deal with Mitch McConnell. Mm -hmm. I mean, would he have held the seat open for four years? I don't know. <laughs> He already did it for a year. It's not It's not as if that was without, you know, he already had some precedent for leaving it open if he really chose to. Um, scholars will remind us that the Supreme Court has not always had nine members. Mm -hmm. And it's not a constitutional requirement. You could have 15, you could have seven. You, they've had eight for a long period of time, I think, even besides 2016. They've had eight. Uh, I want to say at one point there was 11 back in the early 1800s. Um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in order to try to break the logjam of, of a conservative court that kept striking down his new, new air, new age, or sorry, uh, new deal progressive reforms. That was what the, that's what they dubbed the court packing scandal. He threatened to add six more uh, Supreme court justices to try to get votes to go his way. And uh, politically, I think it was a little treacherous at the time, but suddenly the court started being a lot more amenable to, uh, to the reforms that kept passing through a very democratic Congress from a very democratic president that was trying to save the country. in the last time we had a great depression. Yeah. See, see, I was hoping 
and and as I start to say this, uh, Jim, I realize it's, it was an unrealistic hope. But it, Donald Trump did not win the popular vote. So he didn't have a mandate. And this is one of my favorite themes. He rules as though he has a mandate. That's something, uh, he's a very willful guy. Uh, he is, I mean, he put his name on the building downtown Chicago, even though people in Chicago despise him and he doesn't seem bothered by that fact. So he's used to, he has a strong sense of entitlement. Uh, and in this particular case, uh, he feels entitled to put extremist right-wing judges on the bench, even though he did not win a majority. Uh, I would be much more open-minded to the notion of bipartisanship if I saw a Republican president who was elected by virtue of the fact of the Electoral College but did not win the popular vote, say, I feel a responsibility, what, to be more even-handed with the judges I nominate. To I, I recognize that I did not win uh, a majority. So as a result, I'm going to allow a certain amount of diversity uh, with the, the judges I appoint. Now, when I say this, Jim, I realize it's so naive and idealistic to assume <laughs> that. But that's I guess that's the ideal that we should strike. You know, Democrats talk about the need for bipartisanship. This is one of Joe Biden's was one of his themes. I don't know if he's going to continue to, to emphasize this. Um one of his themes that we can work together, Republicans and Democrats. But right now, I see no evidence that the Republicans are willing to play that game. I've never seen, I can't think of, correct me if I'm wrong, any Republican senators who voted against either one of Donald Trump's nominees, as controversial as they were, particularly Kavanaugh. So, no. I, I guess the stakes, the Democrats just have to assume that there will be no bipartisanship and that fuels the drive to elect a Democrat uh, president, elect Democrats uh, in the Senate, because there's there's not going to be any bipartisanship coming from the Republicans. Well, you know, number one, the, the way you framed it at, at the beginning of that um, wish, <laughs> I think it's a, it's a wish. It's a, it's a reasonable wish. Because look, if we're all, if we all, look, if we generally have, as an American populace, a desire to have a fair administration of justice, mm -hmm. and if you believe in the United States of America, then you should want there to be fair administration of justice, because if people believe in the justice system, that promotes social order, that makes, that creates a desire for people to want to buy into the system because they don't feel like it's working against them and yeah. that they're always going to get the short end of the stick. So that should be in everyone's interest. So I would actually take your point one step further and say that it should, theoretically, if, if in, in a beautiful world that you just described, if a Republican president or a Democratic president who really didn't have a mandate was more cognizant about not promoting people who just promote an agenda, an ideologically extreme agenda, then even with a mandate, why wouldn't they be more cognizant of the fact that 40, 40 to 45% of the country still doesn't agree with yeah. all of my policies? Therefore, I can't be putting people on the bench who are basically there as sort of a sleeper cell to ram through a bunch of things that I couldn't otherwise get past or that would only get past in extreme circumstances or are really 
a perversion of what the Constitution would allow, but they're just taking it way out there, like saying that corporations are people for the purposes of using political speech. Yeah. Or creating an individual right to own a gun, which does not exist in the Second Amendment. In any textualist reading that I've ever done, that's not in there. But the Supreme Court did that. So, um, yeah, I mean, that should be something that, that presidents would have more of an interest in. But, you know, at the end of the day, the other thing that we always have to lament, as uh, you're probably a lot further left of center than I am in some ways, but uh, Democrats don't get animated by the courts the way that Republicans do. And 2016 was as clear proof as you could ever find because you had a seat open. The prize was sitting right there. So if, to those people who realized how valuable that would be in terms of setting future policy agenda, it could the stakes could not have been more clear. It's like, here it is. Yeah. Do you want to go to the voting booth and try to attain it? Or do you not, just not realize what is actually going on? And I think Republicans were very animated by that. And it goes back to what you often say about Christians about conservatives, you know, almost any piece of the Republican Party swallowing their their principles and voting for Donald Trump because the man wasn't even a Republican until about five years ago, yeah. right? So it's you know like that all what they knew more than anything was exactly what McConnell knew that he would get them a tax cut and he would appoint conservatives. Yeah, because yeah. he doesn't know who judges are. I mean, look at his lawyers. Those aren't people he would appoint to the Supreme Court. He would just take the cues from the Federalist Society. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure his, uh, yeah, I, I get your point. He's, he's got lawyers from New York City. By the way, there's uh, an article at this point. I've been championing at it uh, all day. It was uh, in the New, uh, excuse me, in the Washington Post. It's an excerpt from a book uh, written by a Republican strategist. I'm looking for his day. Oh, here we go. Stuart Stevens. Uh, since you mentioned this, Jim, I just feel compelled to say this. Uh, it is a book where something about along the, li- along the lines of it, it's all lies. <laughs> and this is a Republican strategist who, uh, as I guess he has a conscience and, and despises the Trump administration, has written a book that talks about how all the, the themes that Republicans have been emphasizing all these years were just made up and concocted to come up with some kind of what cover up for uh, justify, justifying voting against Democrats. And one particular point that's on my mind right now has to do with deficits. When Obama was the president, <laughs> there was a great chorus of Republicans saying, oh, my God, you know, we have to have hold the rein on deficits we deficits are very important and jim the headline in today's new york times says it all u.s seeks 500 billion in checks for taxpayers they there was a huge tax cut two years ago there was already a rising deficit they won't cut the military budget and now uh and i support this effort in the the light of the coronavirus crisis yes we have to help people but I'm watching these Republicans who are worried about reelection. Yeah, sure. Deficits, deficits. They're throwing money uh, at, at uh, to the taxpayers. Refunds are coming to the taxpayers. The notion of deficits is out the window. So there are no fixed principles uh, when it comes to the Republican Party. You're also right about the other point. I've had so many conversations with leftists, and I am a I am a lefty. You know this, Jim. You, we we've been around each other a long time. I am a lefty, but I. Not so much of a leftist that I, I'm going to v- stay out of a national election if, let's say, my candidate, Bernie Sanders, doesn't win and it's Hillary Clinton. I happily voted for Hillary Clinton because I do recognize the the power she has to nominate judges and the and the the control and influence they will have in our, our lives. 
But so many leftists, Jim, I have to tell you, to your point, I've had conversations where they go, we could survive it. You know, uh, that, that my life isn't affected by it or I, I can't stand Hillary. <laughs> it comes to I can't stand the Clintons. I, yeah, it's you know, it's it's very frustrating to put it mildly. All well, right. It, I, I'm not going to get any credit for this, but that is what I said to people back in 2016 when folks were saying to me. It's just the lesser of two evils. What's the point? I'm not animated by this. You know what I told them? I told them, war powers, if you don't trust Donald Trump to be a lunatic, which at the time, I mean, thank God we haven't started World War III, but at that time, I was worried about that. The second thing I said to everybody was the Supreme Court seat is open. If they were hesitant, if they were doing purity tests, all that kind of thing. The Supreme Court was the one thing I thought would be, I don't really have to explain this, do I? Like, this this should be persuasive. I don't know if all those people actually voted, but we see the results. I mean, Illinois was, uh, you know, whatever, 60% for Clinton. So it's not like locally it made that much of a difference. But, yeah, it's uh, it, there's more to it than having exactly the candidate who espouses every single belief that you have. All right. Now, usually we take deep dives into uh, issues uh, affecting Donald Trump and his battles with uh, all the various investigations against him and uh, the Mueller investigation. We've talked about all the impeachment. We've, t- we've had all this talk. It seems like uh, out of respect for the crisis we're currently facing, I'll, I'll limit it to this. Uh, just got to get your thoughts on the notion that Donald Trump may use the coronavirus uh, scare and, ep- and pandemic uh, as a cover <laughs> to pardon Michael Flynn. Let's just talk about that for a moment. Uh, we've had Michael Flynn. I don't think you and I have discussed Michael Flynn in about a year, I want to say. He's kind of disappeared uh, from the radar. Sure. But uh, give folks a, an idea of what's at stake here. Well, Michael Flynn is a really fascinating case because he actually served under the Obama administration. The Defense Intelligence Agency, that's like the intelligence part, you know, the Defense Department's own security service and intelligence service. He was in charge of that. Uh, I don't think Obama, I think he may have regretted that decision somewhere along the way. I think Flynn has a reputation for being difficult to work with and maybe their politics clashed at some point. But he was, <laughs> very ironically, and strangely, that's actually true. Now, then what happens? Trump runs for president. Uh, Flynn didn't have that position anymore. He's still a decorated military person. Uh, and he was one of the very first MAGA people out there. I mean, it was him and Jeff Sessions were like the first two people with any kind of reputation that were endorsing Trump. Yep. So he was a big part of the transition team. And the legal case all goes back to communications that Flynn was having during the time that uh, of the transition period between the election and the inauguration. So he has no official authority to do anything yet. He was he was engaged in communications with Russian officials about what their plans were going to be and what the foreign policy might be and how it might change once Trump got into office. Mm-hmm. And then he lied about those things to the FBI. Yeah. So re- rather than get charged with Logan Act violations, with it, I think that's the seventh time on this show that I've used the word Logan Act. And nobody's ever been charged with a Logan Act violation since uh, 1798. But I feel like throwing it out there because it's such a – because nobody knows what it is. It's very uh, historically strange. Anyway, um, but what he gets charged with is, is those misstatements. And then the other strange thing that happens with him is after he pled guilty, because he was said to write guilty on what he did, mm-hmm. 
Um, and, and of course, he his conversations, his malfeasance was, uh, don't forget, that was the thing that spurred Trump's demands of loyalty from Jim Comey. That's what led to firing Jim Comey. That's what led to the Mueller investigation, the appointment of the special prosecutor. So Flynn has been at the, the junction point of so many of the most uh, high-level controversies of the Trump administration. Yeah. Um, but then he also had a very unusual moment where when he had his original lawyers and he was in front of uh, the, the judge who was going to do the sentencing for his guilty plea, the judge basically in open court said, are you sure you want to do this? Because basically I think you're, the prosecutors may have, they might even not have charged you with all the things they should have charged you with. He, he basically asked Flynn in open court whether, and asked the prosecutors, are you sure you shouldn't have charged this man with treason because of all the facts that were before him? And so he suspended that hearing. And they didn't do the sentencing. This was back in maybe December of 2018, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then subsequently, Flynn gets, he fires his old lawyers. He gets two new lawyers, Joe DeGeneva and uh, Victoria Tensing, the box talking head lawyers, um, who I think are just as well versed in conspiracy theories as they are in criminal law. Yeah. <laughs> they come in and they come in with a whole new situation. They want to withdraw the guilty plea. They're accusing the FBI of malfeasance, of hiding the initial interview notes, all kinds of crazy stuff, which the judge's response is what I think most people would say is, he already played guilty to this. Like, are, are you, are you, you want to, you want to contest the underlying facts? Because he just, he admitted that he did these things. Uh, you had the opportunity to contest this. Nobody forced him. Nobody held a gun to his head and said, do you want to plead guilty? He has every right to a trial and he could have had it. So now we get to where are we now? Yeah. We get we get a very bizarre tweet from the president, which referred to, and I still haven't figured out what exactly he was referring to, although I think I can speculate, uh, some sort of accusation that the FBI is treating Flynn very badly, because it's one of the things Donald Trump worries about is how badly people are treat, treated. Um, they're being they're treating him very badly because they've lost the notes or something like that, which that's not what happened. What I think he's referring to is they are refusing to turn over some of those initial interview notes because they don't have to do it because they already pled guilty to it. Yeah. And I'm not even sure if they're always entitled to those 302 interview notes, even in discovery, if, for example, the agent is going to testify about what was said unless there's a controversy over what was said. But he already, again, we're at the sentencing stage. So in the midst of a global pandemic, three days after he himself has actually said, uh, this is a national emergency. I'm declaring a state of emergency. He sort of flips this into his Twitter feed of contemplating very strongly, one of his favorite adjectives, he's very strongly considering a pardon for someone who hasn't even been sentenced yet. Wow. Which I think goes back to, this is pure speculation on my part, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think fundamentally the only reason why he's worried about this is this goes back to the people to whom he is beholden to getting this office in the first place, meaning Trump, meaning whatever happened in his crazy election, however he got there, you know, whatever weird Russian connections that were involved. I mean, this is a Russian connection. These were conversations that General Flynn was having mm-hmm. off the record. This was a period of time when Jared Kushner was talking about trying to set up a secret communication channel at the Russian embassy. I don't know if people remember that anymore now that it's been three years. And it feels like about a hundred since oh that goodness. stuff happened. Yeah. Um, 
But I think that would be, to me, I assume that's the reason why in the midst of all this other stuff where people are actually dying, Americans are presently dying, and we know more are probably going to die, and it's inevitable. He's focusing on something like this. Yeah. Well, I uh, I have a hard time thinking he, he would actually go through with it. Uh, in some ways, perhaps uh, the uh, commuting Rob Bogoyevich's sentence was a preamble. I talked. We talked. I, I think you and I talked about this. Like it was a trial run. See how that would go. Uh, get the notion. Mm-hmm. Get put that out there and see what the response is. And now Rob Bogoyevich has become. No, uh, people aren't paying attention to him right now, but he is making statements, uh, tweets, etc., uh, promoting Donald Trump's reelection. So. Uh, I get the sense, as extreme a move as it is, Donald Trump would try it. And I, I, Jim, it just shows you how far we've devolved as a society from Nixon. As bad as Nixon was, I know it was before your time, but as bad as Nixon was, I remember the advice that was given to him by Patrick Buchanan, one of his speechwriters, was to burn the tapes. Okay, and and uh, Nixon didn't burn the tapes. Right. In fact, you could go listen to the tapes or on the internet right now. I've I've wasted a lot of time listening to Richard Nixon's tapes. Uh, I could tell you that you can find them on YouTube. All kinds of Richard Nixon, con- fascinating stuff. If you're a political geek like I am, and I think you are too, Jim. So I, the notion that Donald Trump is just openly speculating about it, and I'm sure that tweet was sort of like a trial balloon. See how it plays. Mm-hmm. See how much sure. attention it gets. You know, people's minds are focused on other things right now, obviously, like coronavirus. Um, if, if he pulls this off, I can't believe, I can't believe that there, the voters will not re- respond. Uh, I believe voters will respond negatively. I do not believe this will fly. Um, I remember when Gerald Ford pardon Nixon after Nixon resigned Gerald Ford pardoned him because he said the country couldn't go through the trauma of the trial of a president uh, so I'm just going to pardon it he paid a price uh, at uh, yeah. in the 76 election with Carter now I can make a greater argument for pardoning Nixon in those circumstances than I can for pardoning. There is no argument to be made for pardoning no. Michael Flynn, unless it is you want to uh, bury forever the possibility that he could testify against you. As that you were saying. part of it. Uh, yeah. Or any, he owes, he owes him a favor. Um, you know, you can imagine that just like pardoning Joe Arpaio, these are going to be things that are going to be, you know, they're, they're popular at MAGA rallies. Right. These are these are guys who but but I think that it's going to I think with many things that Donald Trump does, because he cannot help but be self-serving, he's always calculating that his whatever he does will gin up positive anger from his base that will be against him. Yeah. In other words, like use Flynn as an example, he'll. If Flynn gets pardoned, he'll be, God forbid, I, I guess it's even possible, he may be a featured speaker at the Republican National Convention oh again, God. just like he was in 2016, and be welcomed as a hero yeah. because, you know, he went out there and he fought battles for, for the great and honorable Tr- Donald Trump. Um, and he's gambling and, and calculating that 
that will be more popular among his people than it will be uh, negative for him in the general population. But you, know, the commercials write themselves. If Michael Bloomberg's looking for something to do with his money, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. listen, Donald Trump is in the midst of a crisis, is more concerned about pardoning a guy who may have committed treason mm-hmm. than he is solving America's problems. It's a real simple super PAC ad. You know, you don't have to say anything about the issues. You don't even have to say you support Joe Biden if, if Bloomberg doesn't want to do that. Yeah. Um, that's an easy one. And since I thought of Arpaio, I got to mention, you know, Arizona is a state that's up for grabs. Joe Arpaio got walloped in it, thank God, after winning five or six elections in a row. He got crushed yeah. back in 2016, I believe. And hopefully people remember just how the reasons why they didn't like him. And hopefully that hurts Trump in, in Arizona because that's, that's, that's one of the seven or eight or ten states that I think is up for grabs this time around. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, that was a, he wanted the accolades from the Fox News crowd, from the, from the well, freedom, American Medal of Freedom winner, Rush Limbaugh, I'm sure, was advocating that Joe Arpaio was a great guy. Like, he wanted those accolades, and he wanted to stand in front of Arizonans who enjoyed Joe Arpaio's racism to cheer for him. But I think he should pay a price for that. And if he does this with Flynn, I mean, there's a pretty serious price to be paid if Americans want to pay attention to and vote on things that, like, Flynn did this out of self-interest. It certainly has no, I mean, it certainly has nothing to do with the American general interest when you're talking to a foreign power secretly and you're not even in power yet. Yeah. All right, Jim Coogan, I appreciate you taking the time in the middle of the crisis uh, to speak with us. And as I've been telling all the guests this week, I hope that the next time we're in a studio together, but I got a feeling, Jim, this is going to last a little longer uh, than a month. We usually chat uh, every month. And uh, so I think we're just going to have to put up with these um, over-the-phone interviews for the foreseeable future. But thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Stay safe. Uh, I was just glad to have a little human contact today. So we'll get through it. Uh, we will indeed. Thank you very much. That's the great Jim Coogan. Uh, he's been coming on my show for as long as I've had a show. S- stay safe, Jim Coogan. Thanks for coming on. That's the end of another Ben Jarofsky bonus show. Take care, everybody. That's correct.